Building the fashion businesses of the future together. Welcome to the future of fashion business. The future of fashion business is about helping aspiring fashion entrepreneurs and designers start their own successful fashion brands by learning from the best, most experienced people in the industry. I am your host, Esteban Julian. For more advice and to learn more about how I started my own fashion brand, make sure you follow my fashion journey on YouTube at Esteban Julian. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Future of Fashion Business. I am your host, Esteban Julian. And on this week's episode, uh, which was an episode that I was very, very excited about, I don't know if you guys know, but I am a huge vintage fanatic. And I had here with me today, Stephen Bethel. And Stephen is the creative director and co-founder of Beyond Retro. Now, Beyond Retro is not only one of the most prestigious and well-known vintage brands, because at the end of the day, that's what they've actually managed to do. They created a brand around the vintage world with uh, covers and magazines like Vogue and a lot of a lot of other very, very inspiring projects, uh, a very recent collaboration with Converse that should be out by the end of August, and just a very, very good and unique brand in general. I was very lucky to have Steven here and talk about, number one, uh, how did he, did he actually start the brand that Beyond Retro is today? What were some of the lessons that he learned as he was starting out? Uh, the importance of developing the skill of finding that unique piece of clothing that you know will sell well and that you know people will fall in love with and the importance of starting with your customer first instead of with your product. Because if you're in the fashion industry, everything that you developed goes around your customer first. So be very, very attentive to your customer. And finally, we also touch base on something extremely important, which is knowing how to spot trends and using your skill of identifying unique vintage products to match the existing trends in the marketplace. That being said, super, super excited about this episode and let's get to it. Awesome. So we are officially rolling, Steven. Now, firstly, obviously... Thank you very much for being here. I'm sure you're hey, there's well, thanks for having me. Thanks for even no, uh, talking about vintage or in used goods. This is amazing. It's it's my pleasure. I mean, I to be honest with you, I think there's not enough people talking about the benefits of of this sort of of products, especially the amount of problems that the industry is having right now. And yeah, I'm very, very excited to have you on. And something that I forgot to mention on our chat is that I'm also very happy to have a Steven in the podcast because although my name Sounds very fancy. Uh, it is actually Steven in Spanish. So there's that. Sweet. <laughs> Name by the same. <laughs> exactly. So let's get to it, Steven. Now, I like to start my episodes by asking my guests a little bit more about their personal story in the industry. So I guess who is Steven Bethel? What got you started in the fashion industry? How did you start? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know the, the we, I got into the uh, quote unquote the fashion business through a circuitous route that um, I was telling somebody this weekend that when I was a young lad, uh, my parents had a 
a uh, Georgian home. It's like built in 1811. And we, mm-hmm. I spent my youth uh, with them at auction houses, buying antiques and fixing up the house, which took us like, oh, 10 years as a family. Uh, but somehow I yeah. fell in love with things with patina and things with stories and, and the image of what that house had been through or what furniture had been through. And that migrated on to what had a piece of workwear from the thirties and forties been through, or what was a dress? What, what, what event did it ever go to? And somehow this aesthetic of really loving things, things that had stories and things that had character and things that were probably not like what you would go down and buy it at your, at your local shop, things that are unique. Uh, mm-hmm. and, we're, and, and ever since then, I've been on this search for, for that unique thing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And because you started a while ago and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been in the industry for 30 plus years, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna say twenty plus years. <laughs> okay, even okay. We'll keep it at twenty plus, so that twenty plus so that years people, don't feel that okay. old. <laughs> awesome. So twenty plus years. Well, we'll edit that out <laughs> so that people no, no, never right. know. Okay with that. No, I know, I know. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, love it. And how did you actually start though? Like, what made you decide? Because obviously, as you said, you were surrounded by so many things uh, in terms of you know that that old vintage design, but what made you focus on fashion in particular? Because I mean, you could have gone any other route, you know, you could have gone the architectural route uh, or just more antique focus. What made you really focus into fashion and what eventually developed into developing beyond retro? Yes. You know, I think it's, um, it comes down to, so we comes down to the fact that fashion is very much a personal reflection of the self. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I wear that, you know, that love of, of, uh, of reflecting the self through vintage. Um, and really started on a, on a sort of a mechanical level. It started, uh, that I had a rag house in Ottawa as a a place where you bring in used clothes and you sort it, you'd stand on the line and see that odd, amazing thing and go man this is really amazing Mm -hmm. and i remember first throwing my first dozen couch and sweaters in the trunk of my car and literally driving to new york city and knocking on the doors of vintage shops in new york offering these 1940s hand-knitted sweaters to vintage houses in uh, new york and that you that you literally picked up from car garage sales and stuff like that this uh, and actually, you know, we had a sorting facility in uh, in Canada right. where we were sorting awesome. used clothes, and I would see these vintage sweaters go by, and instead of them going to, you know, the the wool mill to be cut up and made into new wool, uh, we salvaged them and and uh, wanted to find homes for them, mm-hmm. and that's how uh, and that's how uh, really my sort of foray into vintage started, and I picked up some vintage customers uh, from New York. Uh, in Boston, and they would come up and uh, and sort through the used clothes that we were sorting in in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, it's it's above you know that that finding the one in in a thousand is mm-hmm. really how that that business and and really that um, that just it's hard to get that out of you. You know the uh, the idea of finding that uh, that gem in a pile of non gems. 
No, that's amazing. And yeah, it's, I can understand why people can get so, so attached to vintage because in a way it is, it is like you're constantly on the look for that, you know, diamond in the rough that just needs the right eye, the right talent to spot it and to eventually exploit it. And to be honest, it's something that I don't think is covered enough, especially, and we'll, we'll get to it as we talk to, uh, we talk during the rest of the episode, but there's a lot more to vintage than obviously that it looks cool and uh, it has that character. It has that story, but also the, you know, the sustainability benefits and the benefits to the environment. And I know that you're an avid supporter of this type of things. I believe you call them and correct me if, if I'm mistaken, because I actually wanted to, to, to ask you about, it. you call it the crisis of stuff, right? Yeah. And I, I, I guess, um, um, you know, you think about the amount that Americans buy in America, they buy 450 million pairs of jeans a year. Mm-hmm. And you wow. think just, just on denim, just think wow. on that one thing, 450 million pairs for every pair of jeans that is uh, made, you know, you have to grow the cotton for that. For every bit of cotton you need, you need water. So for every pair of jeans you need you, that are made, uh, you need 1,500 plus liters of water per pair of jeans times that by 450 million. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of water being consumed growing a fluffy ball mm-hmm. uh, to make those jeans. But, but really, to be honest, the, 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 the basis, the real chase we had uh, was not a sustainable chase. The, real, mm-hmm. the first chase we had when we set up Beyond Retro in the UK um, was the premise was could we make could we make used that is vintage part of the landscape of fashion mm-hmm. so it's not a, a panacea nor is it a changing of the total landscape but could it be one more bump in the landscape in London could we offer very relevant items could we mm-hmm. you know chase the trends or interpret the trends through vintage and could we make an impact on the landscape of fashion? That was the premise of Beyond Retro from the outset. And you know, now it's 17 years later, uh, the number of Vogue covers we've had, the number of glossies we've been in, and frankly, even more importantly, the number of people that have donned our doors in the mm-hmm. Beyond Retros. And frankly, we have executed interpreting the trend of the day through vintage um that's 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 a more important that's just as important a story as the sustainable story it's can you nail the trend you know no no, i agree 100 percent. because if it's really if if you start the business out as look we're in this business to be purely sustainable and that's the that's the premise well you probably shouldn't be in business at all the most sustainable thing is you know, eating the rich, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's, 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 that was, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> it's the distance, dude. It's the distance. We keep, uh, okay, no, we don't just, keep failing on each other's jokes, man. <laughs> no, no, it's, all, it's all good, man. It's all good. I, 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 at the end of the day, one of the premises, uh, you know, that the real thing is, is it's one thing to interpret the trends. It's another thing to interpret it through another vehicle, like, like vintage. And that's, that's what, that really is, a, it's not only the find, try to find that best piece, try to find that thing that's unique, but try to find mm-hmm. that 
making this unique that also represents the trend of the day. Uh, that's like that's the the trifecta of runs. Yeah. No, and it sounds like it's a very very hard long process to be honest. And I do I do want to ask you something before we we actually dive into into all of that was so you you literally started the company by, I, I guess you could call it freelancing. Obviously, it wasn't called freelancing back then, but you had your clients in New York that you pretty much sold these unique pieces to. And then from there, you decided to start investing into, you know, building your team up or you brought in a business partner or investors. What was sort of the business structure that you went through from going to selling independently to actually creating a business? Yes, we, um, uh, interestingly enough, my, uh, so the real success here, the, the smart one is never on the phone. So my mm -hmm. partner, um, uh, Helen, who's been my partner for 20 plus years, uh, is really the, the, the uh, she really runs a lot of the, the back engine and the accounting mm -hmm. and, the, and, and frankly has helped massively on the architecture of the business. Like what would the business look like? Um, and in, in how we ended up in London um, was a, certainly a circuitous route. Uh, mm -hmm. Originally, we had a, a, an arrangement with um, one of the charities in Canada that was a supplier of raw material to us. Mm -hmm. And we had promised them that we wouldn't open stores in Canada. So it kind of made it forced us to go to... Go outside. Yeah, go outside. And... And thank goodness, because London, London offers so much um, mm -hmm. from a fashion point of view, from a trend point of view, um, from a customer point of view. You know, people come from all over the world looking at those trends. So it, it, by happenstance, we ended up in London. But, you know, thank goodness we did. And then eight years later, we ended up in, in Sweden as well. We have the shops in Sweden. Um, uh, all of which are contributing to our trend gathering and our ability to interpret the, uh, the trends. And now, we'd like to take a quick commercial break to thank our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Your Social Component. At Your Social Component, we help fashion and e-commerce business owners automate and scale their online sales using the best online advertising strategies out there. If you're looking for a marketing agency that completely understands your industry and can scale your fashion and e-commerce business to the next level, make sure you get in touch through our website at yoursocialcomponent.com. Now let's continue with this week's episode. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So how, lo how long do you think it took you from, again, selling door-to-door -to, -door to independent clients to actually having a business. Obviously it doesn't have to be, you know, the business at scale of where young retro is at today, but where you can say, okay, I, I, I literally took this thing to the next level. How long do you think that that probably took you? You know, it's funny because you said uh, every year you set these markers and every, you have a year goal and a three year goal and, and each of them was an in, important, uh, important number in terms of top line terms of bottom line but it was always important and each one you go man i just hit him i hit this milestone and then just as you get mm -hmm. close to it you're like you're already hitting yourself another milestone another so yeah yeah and you look back and it's like wow 
Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. The, the looking back at WoW has never happened because like we keep pushing forward. Mm, uh, okay. And, and the announcement that we came out with two weeks ago, to me, is transformative about where vintage and the used can go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about that as well. But you, you then realize, I mean, which is another joy about being in a place like London or a place like Sweden, is that um, the the possibilities are 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 amazing in front of you? You know, mm-hmm. so you know when did I realize that I I I'd gone from super small to small to medium small? You know, I just, I'm not sure I could quantify those. Um, but you open the first store and you think, ah, oh, we got something, and then you open the second one and then you open the third, fourth, and eighth one. You know, you're you're always continually pushing the the, the bounds. And a lot of it is because some of the key members, you know, in London, our um, general manager in the UK um, is frankly brilliant, and she's she's driving that along with a you know a team of there's ninety mm-hmm. people now in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's it, uh, not sure. So the answer the question was when did you hit those milestones? I think as soon as we came close, we moved the milestone further. Awesome. And what do you think, what do you think was, what's the most, and I guess you don't have to name the more most important one, but what was the the most special milestone for you? The one that, you know, you'll remember forever. The one that literally made you stop dead and think like, wow, I can't believe this actually happened or this is going to be such a great opportunity for us. Was it the Vogue cover or was it something that was completely unrelated what what it's was funny. that? We had, uh, we had the fashion editor for Time Out in the store when we opened Dalston, mm-hmm. and the irony is the day we opened Dalston, they opened two hundred plus stores in the New Westfield in London. Yeah, and he mm-hmm. said to me, "I would rather be here today with you opening a new Beyond Retro than at Westfield opening two hundred Westfield stores." Wow! And I was like. In a way, I, I, I thought that was a genuine, genuine compliment that, you know, we were doing something different than everybody else. And that somehow, or not only was our offering different, not only the way we were doing our offering was different, but that to me was, uh, was and I know he was, he, was, he was being super kind, but it was a lovely kindness that was on us, you know? Of course, and again, it made, it made you realize the, the passion behind the vintage space that again, it's not just buying pieces of fabric to put on. It's literally investing and looking for something that is going to represent a part of who you are. And I can, I can only imagine how, how nice it would have, it must've felt to get that response from somebody else, somebody who understood pretty much what you were. Yeah. And somebody also who's leaning us up against the one thing is that we don't see our competitors in, as other vintage stores. Our real, you know, it's sort of like that analogy from a business point of view where the, I, I went to a, a, a conference and this guy got up and he said that he owned a, you know, a golf courses. And he says mm-hmm. his real competition isn't the other golf courses. It's, it's tennis, it's football, it's soccer, it's all the other sports that people can play. And I, I feel as if the real beyond retro competition the ones I'm focused on is, is, um, is frankly the other, the, the guys selling new gear, 
and mm-hmm. who are really good at it. And, and those are the guys that we want to chase from a business point of view. How do we mm-hmm. do better than, uh, than some of the, the, the fashion guys that are out there? How, do, how can we be faster? How can we get our product on the floor faster? How can we make a, a wider offering? How do we, you know, what do we need to do to, to be better than the new guy? not the pitch guy. Yeah. Yeah. So you pretty much look for brands that are actually creating unique experiences or are creating something unique for their own customers. And then you think, okay, how can we apply the strategies that they're using to, uh, to make them unique into our own fashion brand? That's it. And how do we actually, and how do we also, um, how do we also, uh, not just take what they're doing, but, but one up them. Mm-hmm. How do we? How are we better? How do we? How do we make the public aware that not only is vintage a relevant offering, but it's a better offering than some of the new, new, the new uh, on-trend retailers? Amazing, and Mass, because there's there's so many questions I would like to ask about vintage. I personally, I'm a huge vintage clothing fan. I wear them a lot, but in terms of the business and how it actually works. It's something that is completely unknown to me. So, I mean, I could talk to you about, I could ask you ages and just a sea of questions in regards to this, but I guess because my audience is people that are thinking about starting their own fashion companies, I would really like to ask you for people out there that might want to actually start a a vintage brand or something similar. They've been inspired by brands like Young Retro and they want to start something that you know, goes along those lines, but in their own way, it all starts with product when it comes to vintage and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually think I'm going to actually back up. Perfect. I think it starts with product. Perfect. That's what I want. Just, and gently, I think what it starts with is watching Mm -hmm. and listening. Uh, And I know that sounds, and I'm sure that, that, I'm sure there are others that have, that, you know, will sell it and say it more eloquent than me, but I think it starts with a customer mm-hmm. um, to look, to see, to sit on the sidewalk and sit on the bench next to the, you know, sit in a cafe and just look out at the people and say, you know, what, if, what, if, what do they, what do they want? What, what is an aspirational image that I want to create through the product? Mm-hmm. And so we start with this idea that, that anybody who starts any business, forget about just a, whether you want to start a vintage business or a new clothing business, it's who's the customer and understand them very well, you know, from, from size to cut, to fill to, to color. Um, so really Brand it starts with a, a deep understanding and a passion and for that customer. It starts with mm-hmm. the customer. Amazing. And how did you, how did you find those first customers? Was it people that, was it information that you got from your first customers when you were selling independently or was it people that were just walking into your first retail stores? How how did you get, you know, those first customers that then became sort of. So that's that's a really good, and and it's a really good example. Actually, when I, when I went to, when I first went to New York and the first time I drove down, it was a 10 hour drive and I'm young and, trunk full of sweaters and I'm all excited about them. And in Canada, we have this very classic sweater that has a beaver on it. It has a beaver uh-huh. on the front. And it has two beavers looking at each other and a beaver on the back. 
And I remember this, uh, this <laughs> the crazy lady from New York said, I really love these couch and sweaters. Send me 50 of them. And wow. I set, the, set her down 50 and one of them, uh, two of them had these beavers on them. And they're actually a really iconic couch and hand knit sweater. And she called up and said, why did you send me a sweater with a rat on it? <laughs> with a rat on it in wow. Who's going to wear a rat on us? And I was like, no, no, that's a beaver. Yeah. She's like, no, it's a rat. And, and somehow what I had done was I had forgotten to listen to the customer and uh -huh. understand the market that she's in and the place she's in. And she would interpret that not as a beaver, but a rat. A rat, yeah. And I, and I somehow think that that's a really good lesson that, that, um, that, uh, it doesn't start with a product because it was a beautiful sweater. It was a beautifully hand mint. It was in mint condition, great zipper. It was like a number 10 zipper, like a proper good heavy zipper. And then mm -hmm. you think to yourself, wait a minute. Um, really, it's about what the customer thinks. What they want. Mm -hmm. And so the first premise for any of this is, who is your customer? Do you understand them? Do you understand what they buy? Do you understand what they like? And then if you have it, so, and now we, we wrap up, um, now in London, we have a trends department, a trends fat forecasting department. And we mm -hmm. list, uh, through a series of means, um, on what are our trends? What are things that we should be watching for? What is our trend forecast say for, mm -hmm. um, SS20 and what should we building up in inventory? Mm -hmm. uh, but it really starts with not the product, but with the customer and listening to that trend and listening mm -hmm. to where you think you should take the punt. Amazing. And where do you, how do you, because I guess a lot of people might not even know how to start, as you said, trend forecasting. How, how should you start listening for your customers? How do you know what places to even look at? Or what is the, what is, what's, where do you tend to find those type of customers? Because what I really, what I really want to know is, who is the first person that you think about when you're trying to gather information about a new trend that's coming up and what, what sort of channel uh, allows you to get that sort of information? Do you get the information from Googling stuff or just looking at magazines or do you get your information from customers that are walking to the retail stores? Cause I want to know how can people that are wanting to start their own fashion brands start learning from their customers. But yeah, and I think, I think the first thing you do is, um, you know, th this is a group, an exercise that we do. We actually break mm -hmm. our customer down into four categories. We mm -hmm. call them, you know, John and Jason and Susie and Mary. And then you, mm -hmm. you actually, because the trend isn't necessarily a trend for one person. It's a trend. It is one group of persons is this kind of trend. Another person is this kind of trend. So trend isn't going to be just asymmetric for everybody. They'll be... Mm -hmm. Uh, multi-level so that I would first do and where do I do it I would sit in the local Starbucks and literally spend days looking at people I, I love to watch people I love to watch people and to see what they wear what they don't wear who are the guys that are the sharp end of the knife that are wearing new things mm -hmm. are they is it translatable um, what are the what are the things that people are wearing and and how can you interpret them you know like a simple thing is you know, this summer it was about tie dye, right? Tie dye is everywhere this summer. So, yeah. and if you sat on a park bench and went, okay, that that person, Mary, she's a tie dye girl. 
she's going to wear tie dye. And what's she going to wear with that tie dye? She's going to wear a pair of cut off shorts. And what's what's going to be in her hair? Which a flower garden would be really good. A little rose flower garden. And then you, what would she have on her feet? What would her handbag look like? And then you build an image of what Mary would be. But then there's going to be Anne. Well, Anne would never wear tie dye because she's just not that kind of. And and what what would you want her outfit? So you sit and literally watch. Observe. And I, I feel as if that sitting and watching and listening is a critical part. It's, it's the most important thing at the end of the day. Um, so, of course, you can, you know, look at the, the magazines or see what the influencers are wearing. But I, I, I think that it's about profiling, profiling that customer in your head and then trying mm-hmm. to figure out how you can interpret what that person uh, should be wearing and what you can deliver. Amazing. And how long, how, how long do you think you have as a designer or creative to develop a product that resonates with that trend? Because I mean, the fashion industry changes so quickly. So how long do you think you have? Let's say you see this girl or you see a certain type of customer that is using, as you said, I don't know, dad shoes. And you see that dad shoes are just the trend. How long or and what sort of timeline do you try to develop or find the product to satisfy that trend? So I think within, within those trends, there are like, there's product that you could call vapor product. Then there's mm-hmm. called, you know, um, uh, sort of a you know, trend product. And then there's base product, you know, mm-hmm. there's the, the all season stuff, the stuff that you're always going to keep around. Uh, and so the vapor product, like three months. You know, mm-hmm. Max, you got to get that on the shop floor right away. You got to deliver as soon as mm-hmm. you can. But then, and, and as the, as you go through those varying categories, uh, it changes. So yeah, I think it really is, is interpretive of depending on, on whether it's a vapor product or whether it's a, a, a mid product or whether it's a, a staple product. Amazing. And how do you, how do you, how do you even know which one, how to know if one's a vapor or a staple? Yes. You know, you're going to get certain products that you go, you know, that's only that we only got three months on that. That's like the gonna, one hit wonder artist, like the song that just comes on. It's like this, this group is going to disappear in like a month, you know? Yeah. But if somehow you've got to, um, yeah, satisfy the market. Then. So it's so out there that you know that it's going to have a short life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it's not going to be able to carry the day, you know? for a super long time, maybe, and maybe, and remember, it's not necessarily just a product. Maybe it's just a treatment of, of a fabric on a product, you know, mm-hmm. is a bleach dyeing going to last much longer than three months? It's a really good question. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. Awesome. Well, Steven, there's something that I really want to touch base on before we obviously wrap this whole thing up again. There's so many things I want to talk about. And that is, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not familiar with the vintage industry at all, but I would guess, and this is just a guess, that and the business model is quite similar to starting a regular fashion brand, but the thing that really starts getting very different is getting the product and everything supply chain related. Is that correct? Sorry, you have to say that sentence because you cut out. I apologize. Sorry, not a word. So I'm guessing, and this is just a guess, that a vintage brand and a regular fashion brand, the business model, they both have a lot of things in common. 
but the one major difference would be the product in terms of, you know, actually finding and developing a product and the supply chain around the model. Is that correct? Yeah. Supply is certainly for, for vintage supply is a real concern, right? Um, uh-huh, exactly. Cause there's, you don't cre- you can't just create a product. You have to actually go out there and find it. Right. Yeah. Or, well, there are, look, there's a lot of guys in the vintage business that, that troll, um, a lot of people troll, uh, Goodwills and value villages and, and savers and salvation armies to build mm-hmm. up a really good offering or, you know, there's a, a really good model in, uh, in Denver, Colorado, for example, there's a lot of good vintage stores who go to estate sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and literally somebody's, you know, uh, Aunt Mary's died and she, you know, people just want to get rid of everything in her house and they, they go through and pick out things for estate sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are good ways to start and good ways to fill uh, shops with relevant items. You know? mm-hmm. And that's, that's what you did when you started, right? You did similar things we actually so we actually uh we actually had our own sorting facilities so so okay. uh, you know kind of a microwave to start would be go to your local thrift stores and collect product and bring it back to us to a relevant on-trend store another mm-hmm. way would be to go to estate sales and then another way would be go to rag houses or sorting facilities those rag okay. houses are guys that buy the product so the way that the, the thrift business works for the most mm-hmm. part is that people donate, say, 100 pounds of used clothes to a Salvation Army. The Salvation Army will go through it and put 50% of that on the shop floor. Mm-hmm. 50% of that that doesn't sell, they put back into a pile. And they call it mixed rags. So in other words, uh, 75 out of 100 items that get donated to, it, to your local charity don't get sold in the thrift store. They bail mm-hmm. them up and they, uh, and they get sold to guys that are sorting for the reuse market in Central America or in Africa mm-hmm. or in wherever. And in most major cities, there are, are sorting facilities or rag houses. Mm-hmm. You can just look them up on the internet. And you mm-hmm. literally go into the guy and say, look, I want to buy, um, buy a selected grade of product and put it on my shop floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So the easiest way to go to a thrift store, harder way, go to the, uh, go to estate sales. You know, the more scaled way is you go to rag houses. Awesome. Yeah. Because I'm guessing you can't just go to a rag house and say, I just want these 10 things, right? You'd have to be taking. Yeah. They want it. They want you to, they want you to show up and you know, the guy's sorting hundreds of thousands of pieces a day. doesn't want to deal with somebody that's going to deal with, you know, 10 items a day. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. And how do you, uh, something that's also very, very curious to me is, is pricing. You know, how do you know how much to charge for an actual piece? Cause I'm guessing that ties a lot with the skill that you were talking about earlier of knowing how to find those diamonds in the rough, you know? Yeah. And I, and, and the thing about the, the vintage trade is, is that it's really an, a learned business, you know, how, what makes a pair of jeans worth $20 or it makes a pair of jeans worth two thousand dollars. What's mm-hmm. what are the differentiators? What are the characteristics that make it? And that comes with learning and education and time. But the first baseline, though, to be honest with you, is you know what will what will the market bear? What how do you price yourself? Going back to my original comment, how do you price yourself so that you're a good alternative to new? 
you know, keep in mind that now, um, you know, retailers are selling, you know, the grocery store, you can buy a t-shirt for three ninety nine. How does mm-hmm. the market bear paying, uh, you know, $15 for a vintage tea and when you can buy a, a new tea at your grocery store for three ninety nine, mm-hmm. And so you've, you've got to make sure that you're bringing in relevant items that people are going to be, Oh, somebody's going to want to wear this, uh, this, you know, yellow, uh, smiley face t-shirt cause you can't get this anywhere else. And it was only mm-hmm. made in the seventies or you, you, I found this Nike pinwheel shirt from the late seventies. This is like a, 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 a collector's items worth 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you, how do you, that comes with time, but also you just need to be realistic about what's in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are people looking for? As you said, listening to the marketplace, uh, I'm guessing a, a great way or, or something that a lot of people starting out could do is have brands that you want to compete with, you know, so you can get sort of an idea of what type of product you should be offering, what type of prices you should be looking to sell them for. And obviously look for, look for product that is going to give you the, the margin so that you don't, you obviously have to make a profit on those resales, right? That's it. And it, and also it's, it's how do you price yourself so that, you know, you fit into the market and frankly, you know, it's, it's, uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing competitive analysis in your, in your town or in your city that you live in and go to the five vintage stores in your city and go to the thrift stores, go to the new stores and say, okay, well, this t-shirt really at these three places would sell for this. This is where I want to put myself. It needs One needs to be relevant to the market that you're in for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Steven, uh, I really want to also, and I know I've been kind of all over the place with the questions, but again, there's so many things I want to ask. It just keeps just, just random questions keep popping into my head. And before we end this, before we end all of this, I really want to, get your take on the future of retro and vintage? Where do you see the industry going? Uh, what do you think is next? Do you think people are just going to always keep wearing it? Do you think it's going to be a lot more popular in the future? What are, what are your takes on it, on the future of vintage? The, the future really for us um, is that the vintage, vintage is an evolving target. It's not a, it's not a, a it's not a, it's not a brand that will have its time and die off. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's evolving with the trends of the day. If you're doing your job right, you're reflecting the trends right. And so I, you know, we, you know, for 17 years in London and in Sweden, we've evolved and, and done and, and made those trends work uh, and reflected properly. We did our homework and did it, got the trends right. But mm-hmm. what I'm really excited about the future is as an addition to there was a fast company uh, article that just came out that uh, showed the collaboration between beyond retro and converse. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and, and this is really quite an exciting thing where oh, yeah. um, beyond retro has a, a skill set, which is this ability to sort and select clothing. Our first premise was, could we make used or vintage part of the landscape of, of fashion? And mm-hmm. through the doors of Beyond Retro, we're checking that box. You know, the box gets erased and we check it again. We box it. It's a continual process. But the next premise was, could we make used part of the landscape of new manufacturing? 
and the collaboration that that we have done with Converse that's that was exposed in the Fast Company article was that we took vintage denim, vintage jeans, and we cut out the components to be able to make uh, for for Converse to be able to make the Chuck Taylor. Nice. And, wow. And and so uh, at the end of August, worldwide, people will be able to buy an individual Chuck Taylor with a different color. Each one of them, each pair has a different color of hue. And for us, the, the, the exciting thing about vintage will be not only will we be interpreting the trends and offering a, an exciting retail arm, not only will we be um, continually having this conversation about how vintage should operate in the landscape of fashion, but mm-hmm. now we've at scale been able to show that, that vintage can be part of the landscape of new manufacturing. Yeah, part of the culture, part of the culture that what's happening nowadays is that vintage is not something that is outdated or old. That again, if if you spot the trends and you find product that's good enough to stick with those trends, that vintage can be a very, very relevant and important business. Yeah, and and, and also the 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 um, uh, and our collaboration with Converse shows that even if the garment isn't wearable, even if it's it can't be resold as it is, can't be remanufactured into something new. And for mm-hmm. us, that's an exciting thing. Yeah, awesome. And where do where will people be able to find more of of these products in particular? Should should they be checking out the Converse website, your website? Yeah, so the, the Converse shoe comes live at the end of August. Uh, mm-hmm. And so more will be told about that project then. But by all means, uh, visit beyondretro.com to see our amazing collection of, uh, of vintage. I think there's 30 some odd thousand items, unique items on the site. Amazing. You ship worldwide everything, right? Everything's Ship everything's worldwide, sold. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, <laughs> Stephen, uh, before I finally give some closure to this amazing, amazing episode. I want to ask you one last thing. And this is sort of a surprise question that I never warn my, my guests about. And that question is going to be, if you could go back, you know, to when you started in this industry or whatever you would like, what would be the best piece of advice that you'd give yourself and why? You know, um, uh, about, eight years into the business, there was an old man that I did business with in Toronto and he came up and he visited me. He, he, he was giving me advice. He was in his late eighties and he was just genuinely wanting to help me out. And he had mm-hmm. his cane and he kept hitting me while he was talking to me. Like I was <laughs> not going to pay attention. So he was hitting me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, look, any idiot can sell the gold. It's the guy that can sell the garbage. He's going to make money. Love that. Wow. Love that. And I feel as no, if it's, 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 a, it's a good lesson for anybody. But look, listen to the customer. Always listen to that customer. Amazing. No, I really, I, I really relate with that, with that, the piece of advice the old man gave you, because I know I sure as hell uh, have been, I've been learning that sales are a lot more important than you think, and you need to be able to sell anything pretty much. As long as you believe in it, of course. Find something that you believe enough so that you can sell no matter how trash people might look at it, you know? Well, it's also, it's also taking, 
you know, one man, one man's trash is another man's gold. It's just about putting it into a new context. Perspective. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Love it. Well, Steven, thank you very much for the episode today. A lot, a lot of really, really cool insight. No, thank you. And look, and, and I really appreciate you doing these podcasts. This is really great. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, to be honest with you, because I, when, when I started my, my own fashion brand, and I'm, obviously I'm not saying that I'm nowhere near where you guys are at, uh, I just struggled so much. You know, I just struggled so much learning everything, everything, every lesson involved a lot of time spent and a lot of money. And, you know, I just thought if there's any way that I could just help people out there start this out and obviously le- learn because, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be asking these questions and to be firsthand learning from people like you, then, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely a project that, that I wanted to dive into. But I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot, Stephen. Okay, thank you. If you want to learn even more about how you can start your own fashion brand, make sure you follow me on YouTube at Esteban Julian. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Future of Fashion Business. Make sure you subscribe to listen to our future episodes.